If you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation, the back of the book. This will be an easy one to find. The last pages. Um, And you can actually go ahead and have a seat, if you will, please. Because this is probably going to set the record for the longest scripture reading before a sermon uh, that we've done here at New St. Peter's that I'm aware of. And uh, so I am going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to make you stand through the entire thing, though. So this morning, we're concluding the series that we've been doing on four big-picture truths of the gospel, four big-picture things that fit together in all of Scripture. And the Apostle John, just to kind of set a little bit of the stage, is a, a very elderly man at this point writing this revelation, receiving this revelation from God. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, and, and he sees this fantastical vision that God gives to him to draw Scripture to a close. And so we're going to read all of Revelation 21 and 22, both chapters. I'm going to read, and you can follow along as I do. And so little Christians, younger disciples among us, as you listen to this, there are tons of pictures that you could draw here. And this is a fantastic opportunity, and I would love to see some of the pictures that you might draw. What does John see as, as we read this uh, passage, these two chapters from Revelation 21 and 22? What does he see here, and, and how might you draw a picture of it? It's a, it's a beautiful and amazing picture. So this is what we read, starting in chapter 21. Again, I'll read the entirety of the two chapters. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a high, great high wall with twelve gates, 
And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gate, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass." And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would allow us to understand. Father, would you come and be with us and among us and in us? Because Lord, if you don't, we will only be confused and we will only fantasize our own imaginations of what this means. But Father, by the work of your Spirit, you would grant that we might understand your word and the glory of what you have yet to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a long and fantastic reading, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like sitting in a movie theater, if you pay attention, and see all of what is there, all of what's coming to you here at the end of Revelation. When I was in eighth grade, I was playing football, and, and football season began at the end of the summer, and we were beginning practices, and a new kid showed up on the field. His name was Michael. He was not there to play football because he was less than four feet tall, less than 75 pounds. He was a little bitty guy. He never grew any bigger than that. All through high school and to the very end of his life, he didn't. Michael loved sports, and he came as a new student to our school to be a part of the football team. He could not play. He just wanted to be the manager. He just wanted to be close to the action. Michael had a heart condition that he was born with. I don't know exactly what it was, but for, for whatever reason, physically, his body just never developed beyond 3 feet 10 inches tall and 70 pounds. That's all he ever was. He went on into high school with us. Eventually, he had to go to an alternative uh, way of finishing high school, and eventually he did, but he never grew beyond his size. Michael was a friend, and I enjoyed his, his friendship throughout high school. He was a manager for the basketball team, and he just wanted to be close to sports. He loved sports. He also loved Jesus. He loved the gospel. He now is freed from that broken body. He died at the age of 29, his body just unable to, to extend his life beyond that young age. Michael is now freed from that broken body, and he now is waiting for this day, the one that we just read about, the day when his body will be made new. Michael had a very unique advantage over the rest of us at McCullough Middle School and at Highland Park High School because his peculiar condition gave him not only an urgent need to long for heaven, but also a tangible reason to believe in its reality. Do you long for heaven? Do you really believe? Do you really believe that glorification 
is true. Do you believe that? The biblical narrative is so tightly woven together, it's, it's, it's amazing and interesting to see. However you may package it, whether you talk about it in terms of creation and fall and redemption and restoration, or if you talk about it as we've been these past weeks in terms of Scripture and justification, sanctification, glorification, the, the narrative of Scripture is so tightly woven together that what you believe about what God has for you then has a profound effect and flavoring of what you perceive God to be doing with you now. The Bible, interestingly, logically, begins with a beginning, doesn't it? I mean, way back in Genesis, in the beginning, God. Ironically, though, it also ends with a beginning. Right here, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new beginning. Redemptive history finishes with a new start. It's where John takes us in this revelation. Meaning that all that preceded the new start was only birth pangs for the real reality that was yet to come. As the one on the throne declares in John's hearing, Behold, I am making all things new. John's fantastic vision, his almost science fiction worthy movie script, as as we just read, is God crying out to us that in glorification there is a new measure of worth. A new measure of worth. What does John see? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned. As a bride adorned. The angel is is carrying a measuring rod to measure the city. In other words, to highlight the perfection of the bride, this bride adorned for her groom. And presents in that way a new measure of worth, not as man measures, as we tend to know, but rather as God measures. And one of those measures is by redemption. There's a new measure of worth by redemption. After all, Jerusalem is the imagery here. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Jerusalem was a city that had more infamy than glory, really, in its history. If you think about it, it was a city that was dishonored by King David's adultery, its greatest king, dishonoring this city by his adultery with with a woman, not his wife. And, And this city rejected the prophets of God again and again and again as he sent his prophets to this city to call them back to faithfulness to him. They rejected his prophets again and again and again. The city was destroyed by Assyria eventually. Generations later, it was poorly rebuilt, only to then be destroyed again by the Romans. I mean, this was a city that had a rough history, a a history of infamy more than, than of glory. And yet in glorification, God redeems it. He recreates it as good and holy, as a bride adorned, having the glory of God, he says. Now, this city is symbolic what John is seeing is a symbol of something much greater. But, but think about even the details of the city. There are 12 gates in the city, as we read, each one having the name of one of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They're named after the tribes of the sons of Jacob, Israel. And then there are the 12 foundations named after the 12 apostles. So you have the Old Testament 12, and you have the New Testament 12, this 
unification of God's people throughout all of history. And these are the holy and faithful giants of the faith of Scripture, aren't they? Sort of? No, not really? I mean, no, they're not. I mean, if you think about it, who were these people that, that are named on these gates and these foundations? The 12 tribes. So remember your Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because Jacob was a deceiver. God renamed him Israel, the one who struggles with God, in whom God is engaged. And Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, and on goes the list of 12 sons who, over the course of generations, would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 were known really more for their soap opera of trickery and deceit than they were for their faithfulness. That's who these people were. I mean, the the brothers sold the youngest, Joseph, into slavery with the gypsies because of their jealousy for him. And then they deceived their beloved father back home, lying and telling him that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. And then one of them, Judah, impregnated his daughter-in-law. Oh, he didn't know it at the time. He thought she was a prostitute which doesn't make it much better, does it? I mean, this is Judah. And their descendants were the ones who worshipped the golden calf, who exchanged the word of God for a a chunk of gold shaped after a a cow. These were the people. And the, the Bible is not hesitant to show us who they were. It doesn't short us on the accounts of their brutality and fraud and rape and murder and cowardice. And these are the gate names of the New Jerusalem. But then think about the apostles, you know, the 12 apostles. What do you know about them? Peter, James, and John. I mean, we tend to know of those guys fairly well, perhaps. And then there's Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and Matthew. They show up sometimes. But then the other James and Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Simon, Matthias, I mean, Can you even name them? I mean, how do you know who they are? They they hardly show up anywhere. They're kind of obscure. And they were just ordinary men, kind of courageous at times, maybe. Dense and slow at others, often. And even cowardly in the end. And these are the names of the foundations of the New Jerusalem. I mean, heaven is measured by redemption, isn't it? This is what John is seeing. There's a new measure of worth. It's measured by the recreation into eternal perfection of all that was previously broken by sin. This is the new heavens and the new earth. It's also measured by contrast, though. As the new comes down, the old is no more. There's a contrast at work here. And you see in the reading there, the nations and the kings of the earth bringing their glory to contribute to the new heavens and the new earth meaning that there's some consistency between the old and the new, but there's a recreation happening here. In verse 21, there's an intriguing little detail at the end of that verse that maybe is kind of of known in pop culture. What What does John see? The street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Why? Why are the streets of heaven pure gold? Are they really? I mean, are, that's, you know, are they really made of pure gold? Are we going to die and go to heaven and walk on golden streets? Is that really what it is? I mean, I, I don't think so. I think it's just it's a symbolic picture of something going on. What's the picture? It's this. All that seems valuable to us, 
money, career, success, fame, whatever it is that seems valuable to you or to our culture, our world, will pale in contrast to the beauty of God's new creation. The streets are gold in heaven because all that we determine to be of great worth here is like asphalt there. The new measurement is in contrast. We are too easily contented by what we have here. The streets are gold in heaven because what we have here is almost meaningless there. It will be so beautiful. You were made more, made for more than what you have now. You were made for more than what you are now. There's a new measure of worth. But there's also a new measure of life here. Again, what does John see? Our new measure of life, our new experience of life in the new heavens and the new earth will not be up in the sky. You know, we tend to think in terms of heaven. It's up there somewhere. And we're stuck down here on this ball of dirt. And somehow, when we die, we're going to escape this ball of dirt and go up into the clouds where the angels are playing on harps and floating around with their wings and such. That's simply not what John sees here. What does he see? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Coming down out of heaven from God. Heaven is coming to us. I mean, it's not so much that we're going there. It's coming here. John sees a new heaven and a new earth, and you already in justification and sanctification are a new creation as God has made you to be by the work of His Spirit. Right? You're already that. The new experience of life that that glorification brings is not to abolish the old, but rather to renovate it. And in that renovation, we recognize this new experience of life by the absence of some things and as well by the presence of some things. In verse 4, you see the absence. What what does John see there? Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What is it that causes these former things? Death, mourning, crying, pain. What is it that causes those things? But the fall and its effects. Way back in Genesis 3, the fall that, that occurred in and that has been the struggle and conflict throughout the ages, the fall and its effects is what brings these things about. And throughout the ages, as you see the narrative of Scripture unfold, what man has been about has been trying to get back into that garden from Genesis 2. That's where we want to be. And every effort that we make in life is an effort to try to get back into that garden, to recover what we know is supposed to be life for us, and yet it's not. There's so much that's disappointing to us, so much that we wish were absent instead. I think that people who struggle with belief in the gospel don't do it as much on an intellectual level as they do on an emotional level. I mean, surely there's some intellectual level there at work, but I think on an emotional level even more deeply because we struggle with what to do with tears, with death, mourning, crying, and pain. You know, people don't want to talk about death. In, in our day and age, people will talk about almost anything. But death is kind of uncomfortable. Maybe politics is next to it. But nobody wants to talk about death. What does it mean to die and where do you go after that? Because we just don't know what to make of it. You know, those who struggle to believe struggle emotionally because they don't know what to do 
with these things. They think in terms of how can a good and powerful God possibly exist if these things exist? Death, mourning, crying, and pain. They can't be if God is good and powerful at the same time. But we have to say that without a good and powerful God, these things are totally normal. If there is not a good and powerful God who has shown himself through the scriptures as we see, then why would you expect anything but tears and mourning, crying, pain, and death? There is nothing else that's totally normal. You know, think of something that you expect will be absent in the new heavens and the new earth. What are are some of those things? There's deceit and slander and fear. There's loneliness, frustration, and heartache uncertainty and hatred, temptation and discontentment and falsehood. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, what, how, are, how many things are there that you hope and expect to be absent from the new heavens and the new earth? And what will life be without those things? It will be a new experience of life, meaning the absence of the fall and all of its effects that have flowed through history. Death will be no more. And that means that one other thing is absent, which John gives us here, thirst. There will be no more thirst. Did you hear that a couple of times in the passage that we read? We, we read about this. Chapter 21, verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, begin, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And if that's not enough, then again in 22, verse 17, let the one who's thirsty take the water of life without price. Are you thirsty? Not for water, but for life. Are you thirsty for life? Because you recognize that the world as it is is not as it's supposed to be. You know it's not. You know there's something else. There's something more about you and about the world around you that's supposed to be different, that's supposed to be better, that's supposed to be fuller. And you're thirsty. I mean, verse 15 gives us some indication that there are some who are left outside. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and those who love falsehood. There are those who are left outside. We are not universalists. Scripture is not universalist in its scope, saying that everyone is going to come into this city. No. Not those who have refused the gospel. Not those who have turned their backs on God and refused to drink. But what must you pay for the water of life? Nothing. It's free. It's there for the taking. Come and drink those who are thirsty. And if you're afraid then you are, that you are one of those on the outside, as verse 15 gives those descriptions, if you begin to think, well, gosh, I mean, I recognize some of those things in me, and, and I wonder, am I going to be on the outside? That's just an indication of your thirst. Come and drink. So there's this new experience of life by the absence of things. We see it, but there's also the presence of other things that shows this life as well. One other thing in particular, which is security. There is security. Now, there's a fantastic detail here that that is sort of easy to miss. In 21, verse 9, the angel comes to John, and, and he beckons him along. He says, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And then John writes this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay? So the bride, we know from the metaphor of Scripture, is the church. The Apostle Paul is so clear on that and gives us that picture that the bride is the church. It is the bride of Christ. In other words, you are the bride. We are the bride. The universal church throughout the ages is the bride of Christ. You're what's coming down here. You're what John sees descending from the heavens, adorned as a bride. And what is this bride like? Now, this is not exactly romantic. This is much bigger than romantic. And so, husbands, on Valentine's Day, I doubt that you suggested to your bride this. But what is the bride like? What, is, what does John see? He sees it's like a city four square. So, guys, on, Hall- on Valentine's Day, on Halloween you might, but on Valentine's Day you're not going to go to your bride and say, you look like a city four square. You'd get a slap in the face, wouldn't you? But this is a much bigger picture than, than that. John sees a city, four square, and he gives some measurements even. It's 12,000 stadia. A stadia was just an ancient Greek measurement that some say was about maybe 600 feet long or so. I guess we get the word stadium from it. Maybe it's the size of a stadium. And there are 12,000 stadia. This thing is pretty long. If, If you're inclined to do the math, as I kind of am sometimes, you might figure out it means that it would be like 1,400 miles long. And 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles high. And the walls are thick. They're 144 cubits. What's a cubit? I don't know. Who cares? The walls are thick. The details are not so much the point here. Because as you see from the Old Testament, there's a correspondence to what we're recognizing. Its length and its height and its width are equal. It is a cube, and it's made of pure gold. Now, what did we read from 1 Kings 6 just moments ago? We saw this picture of King Solomon building the temple and constructing it out of cedar, wood, and gold. And inside of it, we read this, the inner sanctuary Solomon prepared for the Ark of the Covenant. It was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. It was a golden cube. And it was where God resided. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The very presence of God himself was in this golden cube as the Israelites lived their lives. This is what they saw. And what John saw then was not some eschatological UFO descending over the Mediterranean Sea, What he saw, rather, was the actual unification of God with his redeemed bride. The dimensions are are hyperbole. They're exaggeration for effect. It's, It's not so much the point that there's going to be a golden cube as big as the western half of the United States that descends over New Mexico somewhere. That's that's not the point. That's too small. The point is simply that the church is immense and strong. It is secure. What John saw was not so much a secure fortress as a secure people. Remember, you are the bride. This was the church that John saw coming down. 
the angel said, let me show you the bride. And he showed him the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down, this golden cube. This is where God resides. And now his people and God are united as one in John's vision here. Glorification is a new experience of life. The effects of the fall have fallen and the people of God are secure in God. It also, finally, though, is a new knowledge of God. Glorification suggests to us that there's a new knowledge of God. He hears this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If you are in Christ now, then you know God now. But on this day, you will know him fully. You will have a knowledge of God that is new to you. You will know God even as you don't yet know Him. And in that, there's a promise fulfilled that begins to to kind of make sense of this. In the Old Testament, to Abraham and, and, and to others who came after him, God said repeatedly to His people, I will live with you and walk with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And the reality of that promise was foreshadowed throughout Scripture. In the tabernacle, as God instructed his people to build this tent, this mobile tent that they would move throughout the desert as a tabernacle where God would reside and be with his people. And in the temple, as King Solomon built the temple in that golden cube in the middle of it where God would reside and be with his people. And then Jesus came to embody this promise, Emmanuel, God with his people. And that's continued by the Holy Spirit being in and with his people. And now, John sees, now the dwelling place of God is with men. And verse 7, I will be your God and you will be my son. The marquee reality of the new heavens and the new earth is not so much what you will lose and leave behind when you get there or what you will gain when you arrive there, but rather it's who you will be with. You will be with your Father. You will be with your God. A sociologist, a friend gave me an article recently about a study that a sociologist did on on how Christian families pass the faith along to the next generation. And and he studied hundreds of families over the course of some decades to see how does this happen and, and, and why does it not happen at times? And there were all kinds of different parameters, I guess, that he studied and and patterns that he saw. But one of the most profound and and significant ones was simply this, that children have a good relationship with their father who believes. Children want to be with their dad. Mothers matter too. Moms, don't get me wrong, but there was something unique in his findings about fathers. Fathers. And their words to their children, their activity with their children, their love for their children, their relationship with their children. Because sons and daughters want to be with their dad. Even if your relationship with your dad is negative in in your history and you look back, the pain is very deep, isn't it? Because you know it's not right. You know that you want to be with your dad, with your father, because that's what you were made to be. Glorification fills a promise to be with our Father. And knowing God fully in this way is not only a promise fulfilled, but it's also a place to walk. After all, where did the man first actually walk with God? 
in Scripture, but back in the garden in Genesis 2, you see the man walking with God in Genesis 3, walking with God in the garden. And in chapter 22, we read, what do we see there? The new heavens and the new earth is the new garden. It's the garden made new. What did John see? The river of the water of life flowing through the middle of the street. Kind of a a mixed metaphor image of the garden and the city coming together. And on either side of the river is the tree of life for the healing of the nations. And there the servants of God will see His face. Because there they will once again walk with the one who made them. And they will reign forever and ever And ever, he says. The Chronicles of Narnia, fascinating series of stories by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read them. If you haven't, then you might need to before you enter the gates of the city. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you you read these these pictures, the stories of Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy and the adventures that they have passing through the wardrobe into the the world of Narnia as C.S. Lewis created in in these these great adventures that they have. In the very last, the seventh book, called The Last Battle, the book ends in this way, as Aslan, the great lion, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself, who has been on the move to push back the forces of the, the white witch in the winter that she brought upon the land. And the battle has ended. The forces of Aslan, the lion of the tribe of Judah, have One, and here's how C.S. Lewis ends the story. He says, For us, this is the end of all the stories. But for them, that is Peter, Edmund, Susan, Lucy, and all of their friends, this was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Glorification means that all things are made new. Glorification means that I might get to re-meet my junior high friend Michael and see how he has been stripped of his broken 3-foot, 70-pound body and all the heart condition that went with it, all of that is left behind, and he now is robed with what God intended for him from the very beginning. It will be magnificent to see. Glorification means that there's a new measure of worth. It means that there's a new experience of life, and it means that there is, in the end, a new knowledge of the God who made you, which will always be found in and only and the new heavens and the new earth as they come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would allow us the faith to see and to believe in the truth of this new heavens and this new earth as you have prepared and even are now preparing for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we walk by faith, in these things, not being even able to recognize and see all that you have brought about throughout the history of your redemption or even now are doing, O Lord, would you grant to us eyes to see what you have for us then 
so that even now we might walk in your way in faithfulness in Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.